ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. While you're turning, let me just say I appreciate your prayers. I was sorry to miss being with you on Wednesday, but uh, had another little flare in the diverticulitis, and uh, so it's slowed me down a good bit. I tell people I scheduled it. We had our son-in-law, Johnny, scheduled to come, and he and I were going to do a barn lowering yesterday of our back sheds, and... um, well, you know, you can't do that kind of thing when you're not well. So my wife put out a call. And the Bowman boys with Dad showed up and John and uh, Andrew. And I think it took them about an hour and 15 minutes. So I was happy to watch that happen. And uh, great thanks to everybody that uh, was part of that. And uh, we appreciate it very, very much. But I appreciate your prayers. Uh, Derek is going to take the meeting this evening. I'm kind of running on half steam uh, here and uh, not sure about seminary tomorrow, but do pray the Lord will get me fully back to health and back down to afflict those men that need such affliction at these times. But we're going to read together today from verse 7. We've been reading really the whole of the introduction up to his thesis statement, we're calling it, but I want to just focus in today on the verses that we intend to consider. So from verse 7 in Romans 1, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let... Hitherto, I pause, paused along the way, it's perhaps obvious, but that's one of those archaic terms. Uh, let here basically means what we would mean by the word hindered uh, in modern English. I was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. We'll end our reading in verse 13, and again we trust the Lord to bless the public reading of His Word. And let's pause again before we consider the Word together and ask the Lord's help in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're happy again to lift in corporate worship and praise the testimony, I am His and He is mine. And this, Lord, we could not confess if You had not so plainly revealed it in Your Word and also so powerfully by Your Spirit, wrought it in our very hearts. And so we come today and ask that we, as these addressed in this epistle, might find cause for rejoicing, might cause for being stirred up in what is said of these believers. 
of what is said of us who are like they, your own. We ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day we pointed out that in ancient writings and correspondence it was handled pretty much the reverse of how we handle things today. We today say, dear so-and-so, and we write our letter and we conclude from so-and-so. And as I said, you might not know who it's from unless you look ahead um, until you get to the end. Well, I think there's a certain uh, efficiency in the ancient way. You know right up who's writing. Uh, and then, of course, you understand, oh, they're writing to me. Well, last Lord's Day, we looked at, if we, if we could, the, the from Paul part of the introduction. And what I want to do today is to look at the verses that we've read together. That's to the Romans part of this introduction. But we found last time, and I'll just review that very quickly, that in Paul's statement of who he is, an apostle called and so forth, writing to them, his heart overflows already with his theme. Because he himself identifies with the theme. Paul is writing to them about the Gospel. He's writing to them through the Gospel. He's writing to them as one that is called as an apostle, separated unto the Gospel of God. And the points that we sought to outline were seven. Uh, Not again in an A.W. Pink style, but just seven pieces of that from Paul portion of the greeting that we wanted to highlight. Paul was, as we've already noted, set apart unto this Gospel. And we even talked about some of the distinction between separation from stuff and separation unto stuff. And how vital it is to have that separation unto the Gospel, unto the truth that guides us. And that is what then causes the separation from the other things. You can separate from a lot of stuff and still not have the Gospel. So let us be careful and jealous for that. But I said Paul, firstly, was set apart to this Gospel. Secondly, this Gospel comes from God. Thirdly, we understood and underscored that it is the only Gospel there ever has been or ever will be. It's the Gospel of the Old Testament, as it's put forth in this fullest statement of the Gospel in the New Testament Scriptures. It's a Gospel that focuses upon Jesus Christ. It's concerning His Son that this Gospel is given. It's a gospel, fifthly, we saw for all nations, for all the world. Sixthly, we saw that it calls for the obedience of faith. And then lastly, we saw that it brings glory unto Christ. We see here that they were to do so, the glory of His name. So as I said, today I want to come to the the Romans part of the greeting. And what we find here, again, not perhaps as extensive, we find several things that are mentioned in this greeting, and they're mentioned almost along the way, as it were, important things that Paul's going to flesh out more fully when it comes to the epistle itself. So I don't want us to stop and exhaustively explain every item that is mentioned here in the greeting. If we were to do that, we wouldn't have, say, when it comes to calling, as we'll look at this morning, much to do with a a very important part of chapter 8 as we arrive at that portion of the epistle. But I want to then summarize the truths that are contained, I say, in this to the Romans part of the greeting, 
under three major headings. And I just give you those here as we begin. These Romans to to whom Paul writes are first effectually called. Secondly, we're going to see that they're publicly testifying. And then the third thing that I want to focus our attention on is that they're spiritually growing. Now these are just summary statements that I've coined to look at the many statements that are found herein. But the first one is one of those we could pause for a long time. We could pause for a full message or even more than a message on just that term. But we'll come, Lord willing, to do more of that fleshing out, as it were, when we come later in the epistle. But verse 7 again, as Paul states those to whom he is writing or addresses them, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. You may see that even the to be there is supplied by the translators. But Paul puts forth a truth here that is not uncommon in the greetings that he brings to the New Testament people that he writes to in the various epistles. He comes, as in other key places in these epistles, to speak of the believers to whom he writes as those who are called. Now, Paul doesn't use the term called, as we often do, to mean something like designated. I was trying to think of a particular example of that. I, I, I can't uh, speak with any authority at all for much from the sports world, but let's just suppose that there was a relief pitcher that uh, had one of those fastballs nobody could hit. Well, you might call somebody like that the closer. I don't know, maybe there's somebody out there they've called the closer. Well, Paul's not using the term called here in that sense of nation, like they're called Christians, uh, meaning that the description of them. Nor is he using the term here uh, with, again, just that, that idea of something that belongs to them. He's using the term more like we would use the word when we would call someone, say, to come over here. But it's even more than that. And this is, again, what we'll see more clearly when we come to chapter 8 and elaborate, because in the calling of believers to come, that is this calling in the Gospel, it's not a call that can go unanswered. It's a call that is effectual. And we even use that term when we come in our doctrinal formulations, when we, we look at the various Scriptures and we compile the truth that's contained in them into particular phrases with specific meaning. Effectual calling. It's a calling that God issues to His people that makes them His people. It's more than an invitation, if you will. It's a summons. But it's even more than that. I guess we have in our modern context, or our earthly context, a summons, say, to appear in court. Well, that's pretty serious. That's about as serious a call as anybody can receive down here, but somebody can fail to appear. Well, in the divine summons... Those that are called don't fail to appear. And this divine summons, it's a summons that carries with it the inevitable result 
of making those who are called into what they're called to be. There are nuances of variation. But in many ways, when we speak of this type of calling, this effectual calling, we're talking about all that's wrapped up in our other term, regeneration. It's a call that brings with it life. It's a call that brings with it the ability and the desire to believe. Now again, we're going to come to look at what we talk about the order of salvation when we come to Romans 8 where it's so clearly spelled out for us. The, the different and successive pieces and parts of God calling those that are dead and trespasses into sins into becoming His own people. I want us to distinguish here for a moment because I think this is an important part for us as Calvinists to understand. That there's a difference between what is often called an external call and an internal call. There's a call of the Gospel that goes forth and should go forth from us, the Lord's people, from the church, to all people everywhere. Paul spoke to those on Mars Hill we read of this morning. God calls all men everywhere to repent. That external call, that universal call, it's a call that goes forth to all sinners, which is all sons of Adam, and calls them to repent and believe the Gospel. It's a call that carries with it an obligation But this call differs from what we're saying, the external call from the internal call. Though all are called, all don't respond. There's a difference in those that hear the call and respond to the call, that are transformed by the call, and those who are left unchanged. Now again, we'll flesh this out as we come deeper into the epistle itself. But the truth here, it's a comforting truth. It's a humbling truth. It's quite fitting that Paul puts it before these Roman believers at the very beginning of this letter. That they might even pause and recognize this that we're, we're getting ready to hear about. This that Paul, this Gospel of God, this Gospel of His Son that's going to be unfolded before us here in this letter is something that has been graciously given. It's something that we haven't deserved. We haven't merited. That's why all these pieces of the Gospel are so interwoven. There wasn't anything in us that made us more worthy for this effectual call to be given, to be wrought upon us and upon others. It's all indeed of grace. Now, I know there's some here, some of these doctrines of grace, these pieces of the Calvinistic faith that struggle with them. They come and draw some logical conclusions that, well, are not really those necessary conclusions. The mind can think, well, if 
everybody doesn't have the ability to repent and believe, then you can't really make a bona fide offer of the gospel to everybody. Then you, you, you've just got to go find out who's elect and then call them. Well, can we just underscore we do not believe and we do not believe the Scriptures teach that the church or any individual believer is ever held back from issuing to any person they would ever meet a free offer of the Gospel. We believe in effectual calling. We believe there's a special work of grace that God does, that God must do in the heart of any sinner in order for him to repent and believe the Gospel. If he's not given a new heart and a new mind, he's not going to look at sin the way he needs to look at it. If he's not given a new heart and a new mind, if he's not born from above, he's not going to look at Christ the way he needs to look at Christ. If He's not given a new heart and a new mind, He's not going to call upon this Christ to save Him. And so they would say, well, you can't then preach that anybody can come. You can't preach whosoever will. Do you remember with me? Whosoever will is really more of a limiting designation than a universal designation. Whosoever indeed will, let them come. And when we come to this free offer of the Gospel, this universal call, this external call of the Gospel to all, please hear, please repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. It is a bona fide offer. Because anyone who does repent and believe in Jesus Jesus Christ will and must be saved. We just in giving that free offer of the Gospel understand that unless God moves the heart, unless God breathes life into the dead soul, unless this divine summons is heard and answered, they don't have the ability to repent and believe. This is where I found in my own experience, I know many of you in personal testimony and our own conversations have found in your experience, that coming to understand the doctrines of grace, coming to understand this view of sovereignty in the Gospel, is really more of a, of a help, a liberating thing in sharing the Gospel than a hindrance. Because when we have the mindset everybody has the ability to repent and believe, I just got to evangelize in such a way as to motivate them to flip that switch. And then we tie ourselves up in a knot. Did I do it right? Was my introduction a little off? Should I have made a stronger appeal at the end? And all the bondage that can come from that. And then we get into thinking, well, this guy might do it. That guy, I know he'll never do it. And of course, that little phrase, at the end trying to underscore what are we thinking? Are we thinking the God something the guy does? We come to understand the God of heaven 
can but speak the word and open the eyes and open the heart of the darkest and deepest of sinners. It's not reliant upon some ability I have to fashion the arguments. I just have to present Jesus. I have to tell people who He is and what He's done. And God can breathe life. And the hardest case, let's say somebody like Saul of Tarsus can have his heart melt, have his eyes opened. Or somebody like these Gentile people living in the capital of an empire that is prosperous and powerful and filled with sin and all kinds of worldly distractions and allurements. And yet God has called a people in that city unto Himself. When Paul speaks to his readers as those that are called to be saints, he is underscoring they are recipients of grace. We should flesh out, not merely does he speak here of that effectual call, but he does say they're called to be saints. I was taken back in my study of this particular phrase. Leon Morris pointed out something I'd never seen and noticed But he said that, you know, we often use the word saint like St. Peter or whatever, more so in Rome than in Protestantism to be sure. But there can be an appropriate way to speak of believers as saints. Well, that's what we're called here. But Morris pointed out what I'd never seen. It's always used in the New Testament in the plural. It's never used of Saint so-and-so and 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 Saint so-and-so in the New Testament. It's always plural. It's corporate. It's reference to those that are called as Paul in that very opening phrase of the epistle in verse 1 spoke of himself as called to be an apostle separated unto the gospel of God. A saint is someone who's set apart. And it has here more to do with our being set apart unto God. Set apart as belonging to Him. And here that phrase so descriptive of them, called to be saints. The fleshly mind could take it and twist it and say, called and put into this awful place. The redeemed heart understands. Has the same mindset as Bunyan and his wonderful story of the Pilgrim's Progress. We've been taken out of the city of destruction. We've been called out of that and placed as citizens of another city, a heavenly city, a celestial city, called to be saints. But under this heading, we should also include that phrase that precedes it, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God. We ever wanted a phrase in Romans to pause and sing aloud and elaborate, there would be one. Beloved of God. Can I remind you 
We've covered this territory both in the teaching context some years ago and in the preaching, I'm sure it's been referenced along the way. But let us consider it again. Perhaps the most famous of all verses in our Bibles, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's a truth contained in that oft-repeated text that we need constantly to be reminded of. The fleshly, the religious, the the self-righteous mindset is too easily persuaded of an obstinate God, of a wrathful God, and well, Paul's going to have more than two chapters of his opening argument be unfolding something of the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven. But the mindset is of this God who is, is unwilling, who is difficult to appease. And we can twist in our thinking and somehow think that the work of Jesus that the atonement of the Son of God was offered in an effort to pull down the love of God to us. And that is exactly not what that giant text teaches. It's not what is put before us anywhere in this Bible. What is constantly put before us is it's not the atonement that dragged down the love from an unwilling God. It is the love, the inexplicable love of God to unworthy sinners that freely sent down the atonement. God so loved that He gave. When we see the phrase, beloved of God, Herein is a gospel marvel. We might even be found in our own musings to wonder why? How? What is one of the refrains we sing? How can it be? That's one of the things that God doesn't explain for us. He simply tells us He loved us because He loved us. And again, the flesh and the religious flesh always seek to find some channel of of reason. Well, God loved me because He foresaw something in me. God chose me because he, He foresaw something in me. And you think of the self righteous. Perhaps well-intentioned, but self-righteous theology that underlies such thinking. No, a heart that's been captured by the Gospel as understood and as so plainly described for us in these chapters that follow, it leads one to confess and pen words such as those of McShane, chosen not for good in me wakened up 
from wrath to flee. The Romans are those that are effectually called. Again, there are gospel truths, even in the phrases of that seventh verse, that will find full expression in the chapters that follow. But the second description of these to whom Paul writes, I've given as the heading publicly testifying. And that's where I just want to pause in verse 8 and read again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Publicly testifying. These Roman believers, we don't have full detail as to the extent of their organization. It seems apparent as you see the closing greetings that they were meeting still in house churches. Not perhaps an uncommon thing in any of the corners of the empire at that time. But here is a people that was known as it were they are there. You think of believers in other parts of the world. What an encouragement it must have been to them to think, even in the capital, even in Rome, there are those that are believers. It is subsequent to the date of the writing of this epistle, but we find Paul commenting elsewhere after his journey to Rome, his imprisonment in Rome. Believers there, even of Caesar's household. Perhaps they are of the the slave population in such a house. It seems that would be a likely um, place for some of the converts to be. seems many in Rome that were converted were of the slaves' class, but then historians are correct. Slaves were not an insignificant percentage of the population of Rome in those days. But their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. It wasn't a hidden thing. They weren't ashamed to own His name. As we ponder the question of the hymn of Isaac Watts, my soldier of the cross, follower of the Lamb. And so here, those that are in Rome obviously are not hiding the fact that they are believers in Jesus Christ. They're not, to borrow the terminology and the admonition of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, they're not taking their light and hiding it under a bushel. It's set on a hill that it can't be hid. Again, there are many things in this that I would say in previous decades of our own lives would have pretty much been hypothetical, theoretical parts of Christian living. We have to think back historically and try and imagine, as it were, the difficulties of having a public testimony of publicly owning the name of Christ and it costing something. Of it perhaps even involving us in danger from those that would well want to stir things up. You notice in the reading in Acts 17 this morning, 
I almost paused as we read that. But the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica, again, the self-righteousness that was part of their rejection of the opening and alleging from all the Old Testament Scriptures that the Messiah must needs to have suffered and to have risen from the dead. Because that's a message of grace. And they stirred up the authorities and the people in Thessalonica. Maybe we should have paused with a little bit of the archaic language there. I always smile when I read the phrase, lewd fellows of the baser sort. If you ever want a good comeback line to somebody that's uh, rubbing you the wrong way, that's a great one. You must be a lewd fellow of the baser sort. I'm not encouraging such harsh... Well, I, I digress. How did I get there? It was... Oh, I know where I was. Acts 17. The unbelieving Jews. They, they talk about Paul and this gospel he's preaching. These guys turned the world upside down. They're talking about some other king instead of Caesar. And the Jews are real excited about Rome. And you're really excited about giving all your honor and allegiance and all your taxes to Caesar. How often it is the ungodly, the guilty parties accuse their opponents of the very they are guilty of doing. Well, I say in such a context, in such a world, these Roman believers were naming the name of Jesus. May we seek by the grace of God in our changing world to be such a people publicly testifying, openly known we're believers in Jesus Christ. Let us tell you of Him. That perhaps something the church has struggled with in days of prosperity and freedom, when we're so worldly minded that other things just kind of come higher on the list of what we talk about and put before other people. What will it say of us in days where it's not accompanied by freedom and the liberty to speak of such things without some fear? Here are people publicly testifying and their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And Paul there in verse 9 begins a quite lengthy description, almost an apology as it were, of the fact that he hasn't yet been able to visit Rome to meet these believers face to face. And he speaks about being mindful of it. He had purposed to come there. He'd been let hitherto, as we pause to describe that ancient word, uh, with regard to the hindrances. But notice the things that he, he speaks here. He speaks, verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, 
that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. I'm summarizing those several phrases under the heading, spiritually growing. First here, Paul points out that he longs to see them, that he might impart to them some spiritual gift. It would be easy to think that this is perhaps something of the charismata, those extraordinary gifts of the Spirit that we read of in Acts, particularly the early chapters. But I agree with most that that's not what Paul has in mind here. Those were not indiscriminately given by the apostles. They were given by the laying on of the apostles' hands. They were part of the apostolic era. They were part of testimony of apostolic office and of the truth that they brought. But here it seems evident that Paul's speaking more generally. He's speaking of spiritual profit, of spiritual gain. And he, he follows on by saying, to the end that you may be established. And so there's a building up that Paul has in mind here. And I want us to pause. There are a hundred directions you could take that, that fact that Paul wants to see them edified. But I want to pause and consider a very simple thing. Paul's writing to a people that need to grow in grace. They need to be established. Now there may be some corporate tangible pieces of that establishment that are in view. Uh, perhaps that they would be more structured. Perhaps as he said to Titus, that he might come and ordain elders in every city and that type of thing, that church structure might be more built up in Rome. I don't deny that that could be a piece of, of what he's speaking of here. But of their establishment in the faith, of their growth in grace. And the point I want to underscore here is, is quite a simple thing, but yet sometimes it's so simple we miss it. It's so simple we don't dwell upon it enough. I trust that this is changing some of the, the shift in emphasis in the last quarter century in the American church. But there was a season in the 20th century, the bulk of that middle section, where there was this mindset, almost an unspoken mindset, but it, it permeated the landscape, that evangelism, that the gospel... It's just that initial thing that we use to go get somebody to decide for Christ. And then now we plug them into some set of principles. We plug them into some lifestyle directives. And that's what we, we spend our time in within the church. That's what we use to fix all their problems. And I remember very vividly my freshman year in Bible college having the mindset you know, fundamentalists are shallow. All they do is preach the gospel. And I went out, I got me a, a Ryrie study Bible. That was a big seller in those days. That dates me there. I got a Criswell study Bible. Anybody have one of those? I got some dictionaries, started my commentary collection. I was so proud of that set of books in my dorm room. Now my wife says, honey, how many hundred of these can you get rid of, please? 
Um, but I said, I'm going to study the Word. I'm going to teach my people. None of this just shallow gospel stuff. And I came under the preaching of Alan Cairns in Greenville. I'm wrestling in my own soul with some of the points of doctrine, the doctrines of grace. And I remember coming under the overwhelming realization and conviction. The gospel isn't shallow. I'm reacting to methodologies of evangelism, methodologies of church growth, etc. But the gospel itself is the wisdom of God and the power of God, as Paul tells us so plainly in 1 Corinthians, and as well later here in Romans 1. For these Romans to be, as we're suggesting in our little title here, spiritually growing. What does Paul do? He meticulously writes them a systematic letter so that they will better understand the Gospel. Period. There's no point in our Christian experience where we move on to something else. What we do as we spiritually grow is we go to an ever-deepening understanding of the Gospel. Now the Gospel is simple enough that a child can understand substitution. Can understand that Jesus died in our place. That Jesus lived in our place. What belonged to me was counted as belonging to Him. He died for my sins. What belonged to Him is counted as belonging to me. He merited heaven for me. But the deepest theologian I wish I could remember the specifics. But it was one of the old Princeton men, I believe, so maybe one of the Hodges or Warfield or somebody in there was asked the deepest point of theology he'd ever come to grasp. Reverenced for deep theological knowledge. Sure some aspiring student trying to get a Life-changing answer, as it were. And the story goes, the reply that was given is this. What's the deepest theology I've ever learned in my lifelong study of Scripture? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Paul's writing to a needy people in the center of the Roman world, surrounded by temptation, surrounded by sensuality and sins of every stripe, surrounded even by dangers. And what does he write them about? Does he write to them about, I don't know, sheltering in place, 
food storage, your topic. I'm for a lot of those. He writes to them so that they understand and be established in the doctrines of the gospel. More about Jesus. Would I know? So let us be reminded, have it be underscored. If we're going to be spiritually growing, then we're going to be digging deeper into the simplicity. I love to juxtapose these phrases of Paul. He warns the Corinthians lest they be beguiled. Satan beguiles them from the simplicity that is in Christ. But then he can speak elsewhere of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Romans might be one of those books that they rejoice to have in the catacombs. They could be reminded and be edified of eternal realities when earthly problems came at their worst. Spiritually growing. The last piece of that that I would find in these words, the to the Romans part of this, he says that I might be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Well, what a reassuring and amazing statement from Paul. I mean, he's spoken of coming as an apostle to see them, to, to speak to them, to impart spiritual gift unto them. Obviously, there's benefit the Romans are going to have from Paul showing up. But Paul comes alongside them. He comes with a gospel heart and he speaks of the mutual comfort, the mutual faith. Iron sharpening iron. Paul himself humbly anticipating benefit himself by being with these fellow believers. What a piece of sanctification! What a piece of spiritually growing. And you think of those aspects of fellowship. And again, it's a word I think we often misuse. I'm happy for gatherings of the Lord's people and kickball games and all of the above. Great. But it's the gospel. That's our real point of contact. That's the thread that unites us. So that we as a people, even in this little place, that represent a multitude of different vocations, different backgrounds and interests and gifts and whatever. But to be able to say, these are my people. This is my family. Because this is God's people. This is God's family. And here is Saul 
of Tarsus. Just digest that for a second. Looking forward to spending some time with some Roman slaves. That's a changed man. That's a man who has real understanding. That's a man who's been touched. Even been separated unto the gospel of God. Here, I say a people effectually called. I have to open my notes to get my second point right again. Publicly testifying and spiritually growing. Paul's ready to be there. Mutual benefit being with them. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we ask that You might, by Your Spirit, give each of us that point where we perhaps today have the greatest need. Something of the Gospel. Something of Christ to take with us that we might be spiritually growing as well. Prosper your word, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.